0: Well, again, friends, it's good to be together as the people of God. Last week, we had quite a party. Some of you were here for it. We celebrated our centennial as a church 100 years of living and doing ministry in this community. We celebrated the stories of faithful lives. Over the last 100 years, our our goal has been to experience the life of God in this place and that we would experience so much of the life of God that it would spill out in our community. And that we would be a life-giving community of people uh, to our neighbors and our friends around us. And last week you heard the stories of faithfulness. You heard how God has equipped us to do just that. If you haven't had a chance to walk Centennial Hall, I invite you to do that. And to hear again and to see the stories of people who have lived lives of faithfulness through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And when, when we began to think about our centennial... One of the prayers that I had as I thought about God's faithfulness, I said, Lord, I pray that the past would be prologue. I pray that what you've done in the past would be a prologue to this new chapter that you're writing today. And one of the things you're going to notice very quickly as we tell these stories, or as we have told these stories, is that for some, their story is over. They've joined the church triumphant. They're with the Lord today. And so the earthly part of their story is is over. But for us, we're here today. Our our lungs are filled with air. There's blood pumping through our veins. God has given us this day. And friends, we have a chance to write the next chapter of faithfulness. We have a chance to depend upon the Holy Spirit to be sent out, to be breathed out by the Holy Spirit into the world and to be a life-giving presence in this community. And so how are we to do that? Well, first of all, it's not in our own strength. It's not something that we can muster up because we're just such great people. The, the way we do that is through radical dependence upon the Holy Spirit in our lives. To allow our lives to be transformed by God in such a way that we become a life-giving presence to those that we interact with on a daily basis. And so to that end, I got a question for us on this first Sunday after our centennial— As we write this next chapter, here's a question that we should continually be asking ourselves. How is our daily walk with God telling a story that brings glory and honor to Him? Our daily walk, the choices that we make, the relationships that we have, the interactions we have with our family and our neighbors, and and the the infinite web of relationships that characterize our lives— How is our daily interaction with all of that bringing glory and honor to God? The Apostle Paul, maybe you've heard of him, he continually asked the churches under his authority the same thing. He continually was asking them, how is your daily life pointing to Jesus? And we're going to look at one of the letters that he wrote. He wrote this letter to the church in Corinth. And as I read Paul anguishing with these believers in Corinth. We're going to get into that a little bit this morning. As I read the the fervor with which he wrote to these believers in Corinth, what I sense right off the, right off the bat is that he was playing the long game. When he thought about the church and when he thought about what God was doing through him as, as he was sent with with his buddy Barnabas and with others as they were sent to plant churches and to spread the message of Jesus there in the first century, you could tell that, that this, he wasn't in it for the short term. He understood that the church is the continuation of the ministry of Jesus. Friends, sometimes we have this misconception that the church is somehow an add-on to what God planned to do through Christ. Sometimes the church has been called this great parentheses in between these movements of God. And I, and I just want to correct that for us. That's, a, that's a, a terrible way to think about the church. Because the way the Scriptures portray the church is, is that Jesus ascends to the Father and he commissions the believers to, to go, to, to continue this ministry that I've modeled for you. Wait for the gift that I'm to give you, the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to be my body. You're going to be my hands and my feet. You're going to continue the things that I've been doing. And our brother, Dr. Mindorf said it so well last week that the, the Sermon on the Mount's a great example of the constitution of the church. Friends, we are continuing this, this vision that, that Jesus has for his people. And so the church is not some add-on, it's the continuation. And so Paul, he writes to the church at Corinth, and he's saying, you guys need to understand that that, you, that you're called to embody the presence of Jesus in your community. There's a lot riding on your faithfulness. And so we're going to look at uh, one of his letters. It's called 2 Corinthians. It's uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 11 through 15. I'm going to read that for us in just a moment. And let me just preface it by saying one of the challenges we have when we read Paul's letters is you're listening to one side of a conversation. Imagine someone's talking on the phone. You're riding in the car with them. They get a phone call. And they start talking on the phone, and you only hear their side of the conversation. And imagine if that friend all of a sudden started saying some things very forcefully or very passionately. There'd be something in you that would like to that would say, Boy, I'd like to hear what's on the other side of that conversation. Like what precipitated that? What made this person get so animated and so excited? That's some of the challenges when we come to the letters of Paul, any of the epistles there in the New Testament. We're only hearing one side. But let's hear Paul's side, and then maybe we'll fill in some of the backstory of what's going on on the other side of the phone. So uh, verse 11, Paul writes this. Since then, and again, I'll just pause right there. Okay, so something has preceded this. First part of chapter 5, Paul talks about how our bodies wear down. But because of the resurrection, they're made whole and they're made new again when Jesus resurrects in all things. And so, boy, that's good news. That's good news. That, that, I mean, if you knew that death was not the end, that a resurrection awaited, wouldn't you want to share that? So Paul says, Therefore, because of this good news that Christ's resurrection is imparted to us as believers in him, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. Remember that phrase. That's key. Paul says, If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So let's learn something about these Corinthians. Let's learn something about these people on the other end of the phone. We know that Corinth was a pretty challenging place to do ministry. Last week, our, our brother Dr. Mindorf said that Antioch was a challenging place to do ministry. He said, "Hey, what happens in Antioch stays in Antioch." It was it was that kind of, of place. But imagine that times ten, and that was Corinth. It was a very uh, um, it was a very difficult place for the the message of Jesus to take root, and there were all these issues that kept creeping up as the church in Corinth was trying to get off the ground and as Paul was trying to empower this group of people to be faithful to the message of Jesus. In fact, you may not know this, but, but we have two letters of Paul in our Bible, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. But scholars are convinced that there's at least one other letter. They don't know if it Comes in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, or maybe it precedes 1 Corinthians, but they know for sure that there's one additional letter that did not survive antiquity. Some scholars say there's actually two more that did not survive antiquity. And so we know that Paul spilled a lot of ink on these people. And ink and parchment and the effort it would take to write a letter, it was expensive. But but there's a lot going on in Corinth that Paul wanted to make sure they understood. So if you want to understand Paul's relationship with Corinth, here's an easy way to do it. Think problem child. Think problem child. How many of you have a problem child? No, don't raise your hands. Okay, (laughs) but you can't raise your hand on this. How many of you were the problem child? And you know you were the problem child. Yeah, raise your hand. We can, do, we can raise our hand on that. we got some problem children in the house. Think problem child. Now, it's pretty obvious from the New Testament, Paul did have a favorite. Parents, I know we're not supposed to have favorites, but grandparents, I know y'all have favorites. I know, y'all, I know how y'all do it. I, I mean, once you have grandchildren, I know all the rules are suddenly rewritten and, and you have favorites, But Paul had a favorite child in this New Testament. It's the church at Philippi. Now, he only wrote them a a letter with four chapters. And in those four chapters, he mentions the word joy more than any of his writings. He loved the church at Philippi. Things were going so well at Philippi, they were his favorite child. But Corinth was his problem child. And so he at least, he at least wrote them three letters and we have two of those letters. It's twenty-nine chapters of correspondence, saying to these people, "You got to straighten up." Now, there's some great and some rich theology there. First Corinthians uh, thirteen, the love chapter. We all had that read at our wedding. It's awesome. But in the midst of those, that that rich and that really amazing theology there in in the Corinthian correspondence, is Paul continually saying, "You got to straighten up. You got to get this right. You got to stop acting up." You've got to understand that you are now commissioned to be the physical representation of Jesus in your community. God has a mission, and he wants to do it through you, and he can't while you're fighting with each other and with, while you're fighting with the world. There's a lot of issues in Corinth, but this is, the, the, verse 12 sums it all up. This is what made them the problem child. He's saying, look, there's those people in the church, they take pride in what is seen, Rather than what is in the heart. And what he's tapping in there into there is the, the Corinthians had this, um, this cultural value, and it was common of everyone who lived in Corinth that, that external things were very important: how you looked, how you dressed, your accomplishments. Corinth was a very cosmopolitan city. And it was filled with all these very ostentatious displays of wealth. And they had these lavish rituals for the, the Greek and the Roman gods. And, and they had amazing restaurants. And they had mountain bike trails. And they had all kinds of money. And they had private clubs where people would go eat lunch with the Yeah, I think that's Corinth. Yeah, yeah, that was Corinth. It's this very ostentatious, it's very lavish, cosmopolitan city. And it was impossible for these values to not bleed into the church because people coming to faith were coming out of this world where what mattered on the outside meant more than what was happening inside. And we know this because there was another preacher, and his name was Apollos. Now, without a doubt, Apollos was the better preacher, he was the better orator than Paul. He was more engaging, he was more charismatic. In fact, the book of Acts tells us that Paul was preaching one time and somebody fell asleep and they fell out of a window, which makes me feel better because people fall asleep on me all the time. So I don't feel so bad. But, but, but we know from, from, from other sources that Apollos was an engaging communicator. People loved to hear Apollos preach. He was charismatic. He was dynamic. He had awesome sneakers he was, he was just, he probably was better looking than Paul. Everything about Apollos was more flashy and more ostentatious. And so some people followed Apollos and some people followed Paul. And, late, and earlier, Paul says, look, it can't be us versus them. We're all one in Christ Jesus. There's this issue of, of speaking in tongues that Paul addresses. Again, this, this, some people had this gift. Some people had this prayer language They had this ability to speak in an unknown tongue. And in the middle of worship, they would stand up and start doing that. And Paul's saying, look, that's a lot of focus on me. What about we? And let's make sure we keep the focus on Jesus and not on ourselves. And so there is this this real sense that we're going to take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. And it's important for us as we think about telling the next chapter of our story is it possible that we might do the same thing? Is it possible that we might base our story on these external things rather than what God is doing in our heart? I was at the beach this not too long ago and we were all set for a, a long day at the beach. We had our camp set up and coolers and chairs and we were ready just to be there for the duration and enjoy the ocean. And right next to us, a group of young people, uh, they set up and they had their tent and their chairs and they were all getting set up. And uh, about halfway through the day, I was, I was there enjoying the day and I heard next to, next to us uh, there, a commotion started. And what they were doing, there was, this, there was this one young man and they were daring him to eat something. And I think it was something really hot, I think it was like a ghost pepper or something. And they were like, come on, man, you know, do it, eat this, eat this. And, and they were, you know, trying to get this young man to do this thing. And, and he's like, no, I don't want to eat it, you know. And, and uh, I was sort of, it really kind of piqued my interest, so I sort of, kind of started eavesdropping in on this uh, conversation that was going on. And the guy was just not going to eat the ghost pepper. He's like, no, this is dumb. I'm not going to do it. And then finally, somebody said something that convinced him to take the challenge. They said, come on, man, do it for the gram." OK, and um, so for those of you that don't speak Gen Z, <laughs> let me be your translator this morning. OK, so when someone invites you to do it for the gram, uh, that me this is a common expression that is said when trying to cajole someone into doing something foolish so that it can be disseminated on the social media platform known as Instagram. OK, so there you go. So I'm translating Gen Z for you. Actually, the easier, if you're a boomer today, the easier thing for me to have said would have been, do it for the gram means a triple-double-dog dare you. (laughs) You with me now? It's the same thing, okay? Come on, man. Eat the ghost pepper. A triple-double-dog dare you. Do it for the gram. Oh, that was it. It was on then. He ate it. They filmed it. He went crazy. There wasn't enough water to quench whatever heat was going on in his mouth. Everybody laughed. I laughed. I'm telling you the story today. But it, it underscores something about the way our culture has changed. Man, we're doing some crazy stuff. We're putting it on social media. And I think about how social media has changed our lives. On the one hand, it solved the problem of how do I get all of my friends together in one place? It solved that problem. But on the other hand, it created this problem of, oh my goodness, my friends are all together in one place. <laughs> it, is, it is truly a, a double-edged sword. And it has affected the way we think about our lives, the way we tell our stories, the way we think about ourselves. It has, we, we already compared ourselves to others based on external things. And social media does nothing but highlight external things, how we look, The places we go, the experiences that we have, it highlights all of these things. And it makes our natural human tendency to compare ourselves to others, it exasperates that. And so we're always comparing ourselves to others. We're comparing our story to the story of others. When Scripture is saying something that never changes— Culture will change, social media will change, trends will change, but what Scripture says is the real story of our life is that we are created in the image of God. We are fearfully and we are wonderfully made. We are exactly who God created and declared us to be, and it's good, it's very good. But I worry about how we're allowing this platform to change the way we tell the story of our lives. I read an article this week that that says this. Growing research finds that the more time spent on social media, the more likely a person will experience mental health symptoms like anxiety, isolation, and hopelessness. According to one recent study, high levels of social media use over the span of four years was associated with increased depression among middle and high school youths. And so we have this thing going on in our culture that highlights external things. And Paul is saying there's a real danger there because we can get focused on externals and we can neglect what God is doing in our heart. But even before social media, we had this thing called our resume. Man, the resume is that document that takes all of these external achievements, all these things that we've done in our life. It puts it on one page. And it encapsulates our accomplishments and our achievements and the things that we've done. And don't hear me saying that, that resumes are bad or that your achievements are bad. It's a necessary currency for opening certain doors in our life. We, we need a well-put-together resume. We need this document to open these doors. And there are certain things that we need to have on there And we work hard to to curate this resume and to make sure it projects strength and our competency. But I mention this only to say, think about how our culture places high, high levels of value on this one document. Think about how our culture takes this one document and says, everything that you are, all of your achievements kind of boil down to this 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper. And Scripture is saying something much different. Scripture is inviting us to build our lives on more than our individual external achievements. This always snaps into focus for me when I do a funeral or when I attend a funeral. Because, friends, I'll tell you, there is a marked difference between doing a funeral or attending the funeral of someone who spent the, the primary, someone who the primary pursuit of their life was to build that resume. Was to stack achievement on top of achievement on top of achievement? There's a difference between that person and the the person who said, you know what, my primary mission in life is not to stack achievement on top of achievement, but it is to build and cultivate healthy relationships. It's to invest in people and to invest in things that will outlast me. That always snaps into focus for me. These external things. Paul says "There's, there's this real tendency in the church, there's this real tendency in Corinthian culture to value what's on the outside and to neglect what God is doing in the heart. And so what Paul is saying to them, what he's saying to us, is that this story of the world, this story of the world is not the story of our faith. The story of the world that places emphasis on all of these things is not the story of our faith. It's not who God is calling us to do to, to be. And so the world's saying, do it for the gram. The world's saying, a, a triple-double dog dare you. The world is saying, do it to pad the resume. And Paul talks about a different compelling force in his life. And what is it? Look at verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. The resume, the attention on social media, the likes, the comments. No, it's Christ's love. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Friends, there's a story. And I know there's a lot of stories in our world, but there's a story of a God who loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. And this one and only son lived a sinless life. And he had done nothing wrong, yet surrendered himself to death. And because of his obedience, God raised him to new life. And because Christ has been raised, we too will be raised and we have this hope. This is the story of the gospel And it all revolves around Christ's love and God's love for the world. And what Paul is saying, that story is what compels me. That story is why I do what I do. It's not to bring attention to myself, but it is to exalt Christ, exalt God. This love compels me. This is the defining narrative of our lives. And friends, I I think if we're being honest with ourselves, that it's really easy for our self-interest and our selfishness and our emphasis on the externals, the things that people see. It's real easy for those things to become the defining narrative of our life. Here's the hope for us with that natural inclination. Why, Why is it that we feel that way? Well, Scripture teaches something about sin. Scripture teaches that Adam sinned, and when Adam sinned, all of humanity was now plagued by sin. And Adam is this representative for all of humanity. He, he, and, he and Eve commit this first act of disobedience, and this first act of, of disobedience means that now the whole world is plunged into sin and rebellion. And so Adam rep- is this representative for all of humanity. And, and what Paul says is that, that just as Adam sinned, he's saying Christ died for all. And let's unpack that for just a second. Sometimes people read that and, and, and they read that as if Christ is the substitute, that there's this punishment for, for sin and, and that Jesus takes this punishment for sin. God was going to punish us, but instead he decides to punish his, his one and only son in, in our place. And I can't say that there's anything unbiblical about that. I can only say that that's one aspect of what we call the atonement. So it's one aspect of thinking about what happens on the cross. But there's another aspect of what's happening there on the cross. And I want us to think just as Adam was this representative for all of humanity, Christ does something for us. He dies for us. All of that sin, all of that selfishness, all of that that self-interest, all that self-interest that we have, even though Christ had none of that, he crucifies that and nullifies that on on the cross. He goes to the cross and lays his life down as someone with no self-interest, as someone with no selfishness. He says, I will go to the cross for you. I will take all of that And crucify it on my cross to demonstrate for the world what selflessness looks like. And so Adam has this act of selfishness and rebellion that affects all of us. And Christ, for us, commits this act of selflessness something that is impossible for us, but is completely possible for God. He does that for us. And so the good news of what Jesus does in that moment is that think about our failure. The failure that is so often tied to our selfishness and our self-interest. There is no chapter of failure that Jesus hasn't put to death on the cross. He's put it to death on the cross. All of our self-interest and all of our selfishness and all the times that we exert our own will because of our sinful nature it's nullified on the cross and there's another chapter to this there's another part of what happens there did you you catch what Paul is, is saying and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but live for the one who died for them and was raised again oh friends here's some good news Not only does God take our selfishness and our self-interest and nullify it by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, the ultimate example of selflessness, but then because of Christ's obedience, he's raised to new life and Christ's victory over death is imparted to us. It's as if we won that victory as well when we put our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus And so, friends, there is no chapter of failure. Not only is it nullified by the cross, but it is redeemed through the resurrection. Your chapter of failure, your chapter of selfishness, your chapter of self-interest, it's not only canceled by what Jesus has done, it is redeemed. There's an opportunity for restoration. There's an opportunity for hope. You don't have to live in that broken relationship as a result of your choices or the choices of someone else. That can be redeemed and restored through the resurrection. You see, God's always about the business of redeeming stories. He's all about the business of redeeming stories. And the ultimate goal is that a people would be formed. Think about a people who've had, they've had their failures and their mistakes— nullified by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. These failures and mistakes are redeemed by the hope of the resurrection so that the worst thing we've ever done is not the last thing. God is moving all of it towards restoration. And the ultimate goal, Paul says, look at verse 15, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. That's the way we can live. When we surrender our life to this story, this story of God, we surrender our life to that, and we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for a purpose that is greater than ourselves, and it all revolves around what Jesus has done. Friends, this, this snap, this idea of living for a purpose greater than myself, it snapped into focus for me as I thought about the story of some missionaries There were five missionaries in 1956. They went to Ecuador, and they were part of a mission that was attempting to contact the Wadani people. The Wadani people lived in a remote jungle in this this rainforest area of of Ecuador, and they had largely lived disconnected from the Western world. They largely had no contact with, with the outside world. And among these five missionaries were, were two names that you might recognize. A, a, a guy named Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. Nate Saint was the missionary aviator. He was a pilot. And in, a, in an effort to reach the Wadani people, uh, they built an airplane that would, that would be able to land on this little sandbar they had found in the middle of a river. And I don't know how someone goes about doing that, but Nate Saint found a way. And the ultimate goal was to, to go in, in there. It was only accessible by airplane, to land the plane, and, and to make contact with the Wadani people. But the Wadani people, what, what they knew of them was they were hostile to outsiders. They didn't understand West, the Western world and, and what was going on outside of their tribe. And so they were perceived as a very violent people. And so the first strategy was to fly over the tribe and to fly over the encampment, and they would drop gifts, gifts of food and gifts of resources, and then they would drop some literature, and, and the literature had pictures of, of, of you know, pleasant things trying to say to the, these people that we're friends, that we want to be friends. Someone in the mission made contact with a member of the tribe, and they explained to the, the people in the tribe their intentions, that they wanted to be friends with them. They even learned a phrase that meant we want to be friends. And the time came where these five missionaries thought, you know, I, I think it's time we can fly in and, and we can set up a camp and, and we, can, we can make contact with these people. And so that's what they did. They, they, they landed the plane, they set up a camp, and they were going to traverse through the jungle to where the Wadani people lived and something was miscommunicated. The Wadani people did not understand what they were doing, and they became fearful of what these five missionaries were attempting to do. And they attacked the camp. They destroyed the airplane, and they killed the five missionaries. It was a, it was a terrible moment. It was a moment that many people grieved. It was a terrible loss. But Nate Saint had a sister. Her name was Rachel. And Rachel stayed in Ecuador and she continued to work among the Wadani and try to contact the Wadani even after her brother Nate was killed. Nate had a young son at the time that was living in Ecuador. And one of the the, the most tragic moments was when someone had to break the news to the families of these five missionaries that they had been killed. And Steve remembers as a young person, as an eight or nine-year-old, Receiving that news that his father had been killed, it it, it affected his life and scarred him. And I want to fast forward the story. Rachel continued to work among the Wadani people. She ultimately made contact with them. She was able to introduce them to Jesus. This message had a transformative effect among the Wadani. And she had a very fruitful ministry there. Steve goes on to live in the United States, to grow up in the United States. And Rachel died in Ecuador, and he flew to Ecuador to attend the funeral of his aunt. And at the funeral, Steve met a man named Menkayani. And in the process of meeting Menkayani, he learned that Menkayani was one of the Wadani that was a part of that, uh, that, that tragedy. He was one of the Wadani that had killed the five missionaries. And as he was there finding this out, Minkayani wanted to wanted to build a relationship with him. And Steve said, No, I, I can't do that right now. I'm, I'm not ready for that. And, and so he, he walked away from this opportunity to, to get to know Minkayani and to learn more about the Wadani people. And it was a year later, he was back in Ecuador, and he again had an encounter with Min Kayani. And Steve's heart had softened and and he was ready to hear what Minkayani had to say and to to learn more about the Wadani people. And Minkayani said, Hey, I want to take you to someplace. And by this point, they had built a relationship. And and so they went on a trip. They went to a river in the jungle. They went to a sandbar. And he looked at Minkayani looked at Steve and he said, This is the place where your father died. This is where the plane landed. This is where they had the camp. This is where the attack happened. And I am the man who killed your father. I'm the man that killed your father. And I am sorry for what I've done. But according to our custom, you now have the opportunity to kill me. And then Kayani handed Steve a spear and said, I deserve to die. And Steve held that spear in his hand. And according to this custom, he apparently had the right to kill Minkayani where he stood. And the, the grace and the Spirit of God just rushed over Steve in that moment. And he realized that he was living for a story bigger than himself. He was living for something bigger than himself. He, he broke the spear and he put it down and he embraced Minkayani. And he said something that had been 40 years in the making. He said, I forgive you. Through the grace of Jesus and through the presence of the Holy Spirit at work in both of our lives, I forgive you. And in that moment, Minkayani and Steve became friends, a relationship they continued to have until Minkayani's death in April of 2020. And friends, I tell you that story because it illustrates what happens when Jesus takes our self-interest and our selfishness and he nullifies it on his cross. He takes our right to get even. He takes our right to exert our way, to get what we want. And he says to his people, this is not how you live. This is not what I want your story to be about. I want your story to bring glory and honor to me. I want you to live in a way not for yourself, but I want, to live, I want you to live in a way that points to Jesus. And so friends, we're going to go to the Lord's table. We're going to celebrate communion today. And, and I want to remind you about what God is doing in our life. Friends, in salvation, we come to God. And we ask God to forgive us of our sins, and we invite him into our life, and we make a decision to follow Jesus And in that moment, our sins are forgiven. But that's really only the first step. What God is ultimately wanting to do in your life and salvation is not just to forgive you of your sins, but to transform your life, to sanctify you and to set you apart and to make you more like Jesus. And part of becoming God's sanctified people, part of becoming more like Jesus is taking these These episodes of sin and selfishness and self-interest. And maybe you're in the position of, 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 of Steve in that moment where you have the right, someone's done you wrong. You have the right to exert your will. You have the right to get even. But maybe, not maybe, but part of your sanctification, part of your journey of becoming like Jesus is surrendering that right to get even. Part of your journey of becoming like Jesus is to forgive as you have been forgiven. And so as, as, we, as we come to the Lord's table today, I want to invite all of us to, to into a deeper walk with the Lord. And part of that deeper work, that deeper life that God wants for us, is to be a people that extend forgiveness. To be, be a people that forgives as we have been forgiven. Is there someone you need to forgive today? Is, is there someone that, that you need to just, you, you, they are in your heart, they're in your life, and, and the, there is bitterness there, there's resentment. In this moment, could you begin a journey of just saying, Lord, you've forgiven me. Through your grace and through your presence through the presence of the Holy Spirit would you enable me to forgive them? Just the simplicity of surrendering that to God will allow you to do that. God'll give you the grace and the strength to do that.